Tonight I want to continue the history of Buddhism in India that I started last night. And in the story last night, we had gotten up to the point about 400 years after the death of the Buddha, where there had been a lot of splintering among the schools of early Buddhism. And in fact, history relates that there were 18 different schools formed in these 400 years. The splintering was uh, that that great. And of those 18 schools, only one has survived to today, and that is the Theravada, which traces its lineage back to the very early days of the Staviras. All the other schools uh, were basically lost uh, as Buddhism continued to evolve. Then around 100 BCE, the first intimations of the Mahayana came into evidence. So you all probably are very familiar with the difference in emphasis that the Mahayana offered to the classical teachings. They put a lot of emphasis on the Bodhisattva path and the Paramis as the main foundation for development of the Bodhisattva path. Then the other uh, primary emphasis was on the concept of emptiness. The Mahayana said that it was a new kind of revelation of emptiness in that in the original teachings in the Pali, or let's say the Nikayas, there had been pointings to the emptiness of self through the doctrine of anatta or not-self, but there had not been a clear pointing to the emptiness of objects, the lack of solidity, the lack of inherent existence in the phenomenal world. In fact, you do find pointings to this uh, in the early texts. In the Pali text, there's one particularly striking sutta called a lump of foam in which the whole material world is compared to a mass of foam that's floating on a river. And other parts of our experience are compared to mirages and uh, juggler's tricks or ma- magic tricks. But these, are, these passages are rare And the emphasis in the early teachings was certainly not on the the emptiness of the phenomenal world. It was much more on the emptiness of self. The qualities of the paramis were discussed in the Nikayas, but they weren't assembled as a list and put together as a primary vehicle to awakening, or particularly to Buddhahood. But of course, the concept of the bodhisattva was in the early texts, because the first bodhisattva in that era, was Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha. He talked about his journey over lifetimes. In fact, there were many stories recorded after his death, one of which recounted what is supposedly the moment at which he decided to become a Buddha, the moment at which the bodhisattva aspiration was awakened in that being. It said that he was an ascetic named Sumedha, who was practicing very diligently and close, close to full awakening. And he caught a glimpse of a Buddha of his era who was called the Buddha Dipankara. He was so impressed by the Buddha's bearing and his majesty and the, the vision of compassion that he was manifesting in bringing the teaching to an era that didn't have the message of liberation that Sumedha gave up his aspiration to become enlightened and aspired instead to become a Buddha in a future era. It's said that Dipankara recognized that wish in Sumedha's mind at that moment and validated that he would, in fact, become a Buddha in some future time. 
Sumedha went away and meditated, how can I become a Buddha? What is the path? And came up with the list in Theravadan language of ten paramis. And then set out to practice those over something like four eons and innumerable kalpas <laughs> to become Siddhartha Gautama, who awakened in our time as the Buddha. So, it's interesting, isn't it, that having practiced the path of the Bodhisattva, there is no record in the Nikayas, at any rate, in the early suttas, of the Buddha promoting that as a path to any of his followers. Isn't it interesting? The same path he himself had taken, no record of that being promoted or offered or suggested as a path for his followers to take up themselves. That's curious. I don't know why. Uh, perhaps that kind of aspiration he felt had to come from deep within one's own volition. I don't know. But at any rate, when the Mahayana uh, philosophy came along, this was the first recorded instance of the Bodhisattva path being promoted as a general guideline for all dedicated practitioners. This was something really new. But otherwise, a lot of the elements of the Mahayana can be found in the Pali Canon, just with different emphases. So, uh, there's not so much that's totally new. When I talk about the Mahayana, I'm going to quote a lot from Edward Kanza. Kanza was a British scholar of the last century who did most of the main translations of key Mahayana texts. So, he's very familiar with the Mahayana. He's also studied a lot of the earlier schools, very a uh, good understanding of the history of Buddhism, but he's the one that I want to quote on Mahayana. And what, he, what Kanza says is that the Mahayana placed new emphasis on commonly accepted traditional material. New emphasis and some of the terminology was definitely new. The first Mahayana texts that really uh, surfaced were the texts called the Sutras on the Prajnaparamita. These came into evidence somewhere between around 100 BCE and 50 CE. So in about 150-year span, the Prajnaparamita texts were coming into evidence. Prajna means wisdom in Sanskrit. Paramita means perfection. So the quality of Prajnaparamita means the quality of wisdom that's brought into perfection or it's sometimes translated as transcendent wisdom. This feature of the mind, transcendent wisdom, is represented in the iconography as a female. And there's a statue on the back altar which is the female icon of Prajnaparamita. She is a female because she is considered to be the mother of the Buddhas. Buddhas are born by perfecting the quality of prajna, or wisdom. So this factor of mind, which lies within all of us, is the factor that gives birth to all the Buddhas. That's why she is sometimes called the mother of the Buddhas. The Prajnaparamita Sutras then focus almost exclusively on this quality of wisdom in its transcendent quality. 
they are essentially statement after statement after statement about this factor of mind which in their interpretation has uh, an ultimate quality. As Rinpoche has been describing the ground over the last couple of days, that facet of Buddha nature which is at the basis of our minds, Prajnaparamita is an aspect of that ground. So the sutras point again and again to the transcendent and undying nature of Prajnaparamita, the ultimate nature. This is from Kanza. The lengthy writings on transcendent wisdom are one long declamation in praise of the Absolute. Everybody knows, of course, that nothing can usefully be said about the Absolute. This had prompted the Theravadins to keep silent, or at least nearly silent about it. The Mahayanists, on the other hand, consider everything that might reasonably be said about the Absolute and then expressly reject it as untrue and inadequate. <laughs> I, like this fla- I like the flavor of this. It's, it's kind of true. The Theravadins had kept nearly silent about the nature of the Absolute. When you read the Pali Suttas, very little is said about Nibbana, the actual experience of the unconditioned. It's mostly described in negative terms. It's called the unborn, the undying, the unceasing, the unchanging, the unconditioned. But rarely is it described in anything like positive terms. I don't think that's because the Buddha wasn't was unfamiliar with its qualities. But why did he choose to keep so silent about it? My speculation is, you see this through a lot of his teachings, he uses a negative description again and again as a way of expressing teachings that is incontrovertible. No one can argue with a negative expression. Moreover, it's impossible to make a a concrete goal out of a negative expression. So in a way, his reluctance to talk up in any sort of flowery language the the great uh, mental and heart qualities of the unconditioned acted as a way to keep people from grasping after it and possibly imitating it. There's this famous story in the Pali text where the Buddha was walking through a forest with a group of his monks. And one of the monks asked a question about some abstruse philosophical doctrine, and the Buddha said, I've chosen not to talk about that. He picked up, the Buddha picked up a handful of leaves off the forest floor. He said, which do you think is greater, O monks? The number of leaves in my hand or the number of leaves on all the trees in this forest? And the monks were no dummies. They said, Venerable Sir, of course the number of leaves in the forest is far greater than the number of leaves in your hand. He said, just so, because is what I have revealed to you compared to all that the Tathagata knows. The mind of the Tathagata is omniscient and knows many, many things. And what I have revealed to you is only this handful of leaves. But this handful of leaves, which I have shared with you, is enough for you to become liberated, to walk the path to freedom. So that explains a little of why the Buddha was so reticent to talk about these other topics. The Mahayanists were not, and they haven't stopped talking since. (laughs) Uh, Quite thankfully, 
actually. Because I believe that the Mahayana emphasis on these transcendent qualities was an attempt to correct some of the dryness that had crept into the early schools of Buddhism based on the importance of the Abhidhamma. I think that the, uh, the schools had gotten too dry and technical and had lost some of the living spark of awakening. That's my guess. And some of the scholars hint at this too. So the Mahayanas found a way to re-inject that creative vitality into the Buddhist lineage. And I find that very inspiring. I love to read these sutras today for the, the pointing to the magnificent possibilities of the human heart and mind that they uh, come back to again and again and again. I think it really orients our practice in the right direction and the right spirit. I think it was very, very uh, important. You can also see that as the Mahayana points to the absolute, which cannot be touched or changed, it provides a striking counterpoint to the developmental model of the early Nikaya teachings. The early Nikaya teachings are all about development from a state of suffering and ignorance through the purification of heart and mind through meditation practice to reach the unstained state of purity. The Mahayanas come in at the unstained state of purity and say fundamentally this is all that is. So there's been a tension and continues to be a tension really throughout spiritual life through all denominations between those who look at the pure aspect of our nature, the natural great perfection of the world the way it is, and those who look at the suffering that exists and wish to move out of the suffering and the defilements that cause it toward that purity. There's a tension that exists between the Mahayanas and the Theravadins that exists today in many different schools, and it's the heart of the paradox within true spiritual life. We talked last night about the Heart Sutra, how it restates the teaching on the five aggregates, dependent origination, and the four noble truths, and then negates every one of them. This is the difference between the ultimate view, which recognizes innate purity, and the conventional view, which is the development as a progress over time from defilement to, to purity. The Heart Sutra is one of the body of Prajnaparamita texts. There are a number of them uh, extant today, and the Heart Sutra is one. So this quality of paradox comes into the Buddhist tradition around this time, and you can see how as this migrated into Zen, they built, they built a dynasty on paradox. Every time a question came up, you couldn't answer it rightly. Because if you spoke from the conventional view, you'd be hit. If you spoke from the ultimate view, you'd be hit. Your answer had to combine both. There are, of course, differences, uh, great differences between the expression of the Mahayana, the expression of the uh, Theravada. One of the things that you really notice in the Pali Suttas is the humanness of the Buddha. To me, it gives some credibility that these stories came out shortly after his life or during his life because they really reveal the man in his limitations. I'll give you some examples. As Rinpoche mentioned the other day, 
Once the Buddha awakened under the Bodhi tree, he seriously considered not teaching. He sat for 49 days in silence and he thought, shall I teach? Shall I not teach? Eh, I think I'll give it a miss this time around. I don't think I'll teach. And then the Brahmas came down and, and really encouraged him to teach. One Brahma said to him, but there are beings with little dust in their eyes. Please teach. So the, the Buddha thought some more and he said, but if I teach and they don't understand, that will be a vexation for me. These are the recorded words of his contemplations. If they don't understand, that will be a vexation for me. That's a very human kind of statement, even from a very enlightened being. But he saw that there were beings with little dust in their eyes who would understand, and he was motivated to teach. Another story from his life that's in the Pali texts. There was a gathering of monks at a site called Kosambi in northern India. They had split into two feuding groups, and they were really going at each other. There was a lot of ill will and mean-spirited talk, volleys, verbal volleys from one group to the other, very uh, agitated and a lot of ill will. This didn't sit well with the Buddha because this was his Sangha, the group that he had formed to create harmony and peace in the world. So he traveled to Kasambi. He heard of the quarrel and traveled to Kasambi. Kasambi. He talked to each group of monks. He brought them all together. He talked to them both, asked them to resolve their dispute, and he was ineffective. He could not get the monks to stop quarreling. So he finally said, all right, this is a vexation to me. I'm out of here. You work it out. And he went off on retreat. Another very human element in the suttas comes near the end of his life. He's an old man. He's getting close to 80. The last decade of his life, he traveled around a lot. And he, there are a few records where he and his companion, his attendant, Ananda, arrive at a site, and the local uh, community, whether it's lay or monastic, the local community wants to hear a talk on the Dhamma. And the Buddha says to Ananda, my back is aching. I don't feel capable of giving the talk this evening on the Dhamma. Please, Ananda, you give the talk on the Dhamma tonight, and I will go off and rest. And that's what he does. Now, when the figure of the Buddha comes into the Mahayana sutras, this humanness kind of goes out of the picture, and the Buddha gets kind of elevated to this dimension of perfection. Many passages I could point to, but I'll just read one from the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower ornament scripture, to give you a sense of this. At that time, the Buddha sat on his lion seat, its round platform of exquisite flowers and many jewels, its base, steps, doors, and all its embellishments, each produced as many great bodhisattvas as there are atoms in a Buddha land. Their names were Oceanic Wisdom, Sovereign King of Occult Powers, Thunder Shaking All, Top Knot of Light of Many Jewels, Bold Intelligence of the Sun of Knowledge. This is just some of the names of the bodhisattvas. At the same time that they appeared, these bodhisattvas each produced clouds of offerings. For example, clouds of flowers of all jewels, 
clouds of all different fragrances of lotus blossom, clouds of orbs of jeweled light, clouds of fragrant flames of boundless realms, clouds of jewel-like light spheres from the treasury of the sun, and on and on and on. Such a Buddha will not have a backache. (laughs) Such a Buddha will not be unable to resolve a quarrel between mere mortals. This is the flavor of the Buddha in the Mahayana Sutras. It moves from the human dimension into a very vast cosmological dimension in which the Buddha becomes an archetype. And so perfected that he is really removed from the human realm even of the discomfort of backaches. One of the other qualities that came in with the Mahayana Sutras, again, I'm going to quote Kanza, so you know this didn't come from me. Another characteristic as the Mahayana Sutras evolved was an increasing spirit of sectarianism. And you will find this as you read through the Prajnaparamita Sutras. The early Mahayana Sutras, and the Heart Sutra is no exception, start to cast aspersions on some of the central figures in the Nikaya schools of Buddhism. The main victim, the chief butt of all the jokes, becomes Sariputta. Sariputta was one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha in the Pali texts, uh, on a par with Moggallana. These were his two main disciples. Moggallana was said to be very advanced in psychic powers, therefore the uh, power of concentration, which gives rise to psychic powers. Sariputta was the most developed of all the disciples in wisdom, in Panya. But Sariputta's name became associated with the Abhidhamma. I don't know if this is true or not. We don't know historically if Sariputta did have a hand in creating the Abhidhamma, but his name has become linked to it. So as the early Mahayanas wanted to push back against the formalism of the Abhidhamma, they chose Sariputta as their whipping boy. So he who was currently, formerly let's say, foremost in all the Buddha's disciples in wisdom becomes the object of uh, scorn in the Prajnaparamita, in the teachings on wisdom sutras. So he has to get lectured to because in these these sutras, uh, Sariputta believes that things exist substantially. That's the crime of which he is accused. Things exist substantially. So he has to be lectured to, to be corrected uh, of that deviant view. And this is, the, this is the criticism that is launched of the later Abhidhamma, that it's too substantialist and that it reifies these uh, phenomena called dhammas, which it said were the irreducible units of experience. We'll come back to this later. So, who lectures Sariputta? In the Heart Sutra, and I think other Prajnaparamita sutras too, the lecturing is handed out by Subhuti. Subhuti is also a figure from the Nikaya canons, he, but he is the disciple of the Buddhas who is foremost in loving kindness. Foremost in loving kindness. So as the Mahayana elevated the quality of compassion and put it at the center, uh, Subhuti is the representative for the four immeasurable states, the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, 
and equanimity. So it is the, the centrality of compassion for the Mahayana that makes Subhuti the ideal spokesperson to Sariputta. Also, the um, sort of pejorative terms emerged around this time. Originally, when the Mahayana came into existence, the, their name for the, their school, as it was forming as a new school, was the Bodhisattva-yana. This was really the, the new spirit, was that we could all become bodhisattvas. The name for the existing schools was Sravaka-yana. Sravaka means listener. It's a word that the Buddha himself used of his Sangha in the time that he was alive because his disciples were hearing the Dharma through listening to him. So in the Pali, you hear the term Sawaka Sanko, the listener Sangha. So this is a term that they were quite comfortable with as applied to themselves. So we have the early Mahayana as the Bodhisattva Yana. We have the late classical group as the Sravaka Yana. Those are not yet pejorative. But very soon thereafter, the term Sravakayana got transformed into Hinayana, which means lesser school, and the Bodhisattva-yana got elevated into the term Mahayana, which means the great vehicle. And so those are the terms that have really persisted as defined by the Mahayana. And um, just so everybody knows, Theravadins don't particularly appreciate being called Hinayanists. (laughs) So we, we don't mind the Theravadin term which means way of the elders, uh, Hinayana doesn't rest so comfortably with us. But of course, the, the uh, classical schools couldn't resist from name-calling either. So they had a name back for the Mahayanists, which was Vaitulika. Vaitulika means illusionist. <laughs> and I think it's probably because the Mahayana seemed to be positing this quality of Prajnaparamita as an expression of innate purity that the Buddha himself had not described in that way. So they were called illusionists. Now, the next very interesting development around this period of time, and it made a great impact on the Mahayana, was the emergence of a person I consider the greatest philosopher in the history of Buddhism after the Buddha himself. That was an Indian teacher named Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna came in somewhere around 100 CE. The details of his life are not known, the exact time that he lived is not known. Even some of the works that are attributed to him uh, were not necessarily written by him. Uh, This comment came from a book written by Stephen Batchelor who translated Nagarjuna's central work and had done a lot of research on, on his life. But the one work that is attributed to him that we can feel confident he did write was called Mula Madhyamaka Karika. And this means verses on the fundamental middle way. Stephen's book translates it as root verses on the middle way. This is an incredibly brilliant work. I mean, it's hard to describe what an unbelievable piece of writing it is. Written around close to 2,000 years ago, 
It's been compared uh, in modern times to the work of uh, the philosopher Wittgenstein, but preceded him by about 2,000 years. It was written uh, in Sanskrit. The Sanskrit form has survived, and it's been translated into a number of other languages, Tibetan, of course, Chinese, of course, by now Japanese, and a number of translations exist in English, including some pretty good ones. I find it a mind-blowing work. I believe that the purpose of Nagarjuna in writing it was to blow our minds. I believe that his whole effort was to stop our mind's conceptual thought process. In the stopping of our conceptual thought process, then, to open us to the direct experience of emptiness. I believe that's why he wrote it, and I find for myself that that's actually the way it functions when I read it. The way he does it is to take the uh, factor of emptiness and demonstrate it over and over and over again anywhere that the reader would be inclined to find a resting point, a secure point, a solid point to take a stand on. So he, he starts with the usual, uh, the usual Buddhist descriptors of the senses, uh, the six sense bases, internal and external, the aggregates, and shows the emptiness of each of those dhammas. So the first part of the book is a very clear refutation of the Abhidhamma's tendency to reify those dhammas, those existents, T-E-N-T-S, as a noun, things that exist. So he first starts tearing those apart, and you think, okay, I can deal with that. That's the essential meaning of the lack of solidity within uh, the created world. But I still have the path, right? I still have the Buddhist teachings that I can rest on. So then Nagarjuna does something very, very original. He starts to apply the concept of emptiness to all the teachings of the Buddha. So he applies it to the Four Noble Truths and to dependent origination and even to awakening and nirvana. So that as you read through, I think it's something like 27 chapters of the book, in each chapter, another rug is pulled out from underneath so that at the end, the mind literally has nowhere to take a stand. And that is the freedom from view that truly opens us up into the experience of emptiness. The Buddha taught the emptiness of the phenomenal world, but he didn't teach the emptiness of his own teachings. Why would he, right? Because until you had converted... He didn't want that rug pulled from underneath you. But once you have converted, there's a tendency to solidify a view around that which we have converted to. And that's the rug that Nagarjuna wants to pull away. So his writings are intended for a sophisticated audience, an audience who have already converted and committed themselves to the path. And this is a way of opening up beyond adherence to any particular view. I want to just read some of the pith statements from uh, Nagarjuna's work. There are many, many that I could read, but I'll just read a few. Emptiness stops conceptual proliferation. Emptiness stops conceptual proliferation. 
That is, when you realize immediately the truth of emptiness, your mind stops wandering. So this itself puts you into a state of non-clinging to view. And if the mind stops wandering, it's completely and naturally in the present moment. Another quotation. That to which language refers is denied. That to which language refers is denied. Let's just look around the room and see the things to which language refers. Woman, man, floor, ceiling, painting, statue. What would it mean to deny all of that? Of course, what Nagarjuna is pointing to is that none of these conventional realities exist independently or exist substantially or exist solidly. This is what Rinpoche was pointing to yesterday when he talked about even pure perception of phenomena containing an element of illusion. We need to see through the illusion to the lack of solidity. Here's another The unborn and unceasing nature of reality is comparable to nibbana. Now we normally take reality to be the physical world, which is arising and passing. The physical world is is characterized by impermanence. But Nagarjuna says, the true nature of reality is unborn and unceasing, and because of that, it's like nirvana, the unconditioned. How can that be? Well, when you take away the solid, objective nature of things, there's a way of seeing in which no objects ever come into being. There are only these flashings, momentary flashings of sense experience, not lasting long enough ever to be considered an object at any sense door. When one sees like this, one sees there are no objects arising and passing. Therefore, the truth is, reality is unborn and unceasing. And that is like the unconditioned. That then opens the door to what I think is the strongest statement in the whole work. Samsara does not have the slightest distinction from nirvana. Nirvana does not have the slightest distinction from samsara. Once one has come to this union of understanding that samsara and nirvana are one, this is the start of non-duality. Once we dissolve the duality between samsara and nirvana, we dissolve the distinction between the path and the goal, we dissolve the distinction between ordinary beings and enlightened beings, of course we dissolve the distinction between subject and object. So this lays the groundwork for the later uh, developments in Buddhist philosophy, which we'll talk about next. But before we leave Nagarjuna, I want to mention one other thing I find really interesting. The Mahayanas have claimed Nagarjuna for many, many years, uh, for centuries, because his teachings are such direct pointings to emptiness. But the interesting thing is, all his vocabulary comes from uh, Nikaya Buddhism, the only reference that he quotes uh, is to uh, early suttas. All the vocabulary is completely compatible with early Buddhism. 
And there's not a single mention of the concept of bodhisattva. So, was Nagarjuna a Theravadan or was he a Mahayanist? I don't know. But I think that what's starting to happen is the Theravadins are starting to reclaim him as one of their own because there is nothing in his language that is out of step with Theravadan understanding. Nagarjuna laid this basis then for the understanding of the non-dual and it took some time for a new school to emerge which synthesized the Mahayana teachings and this new school that Nagarjuna had created which was called the Madhyamaka school, the middle way school. The group that did that was the Yogacara school. The Yogacharans are very, very influential in the history of Buddhist philosophy. But they're often not uh, called by that name. They, they had a few names. Yogacara is not very evocative. It just means the conduct of union. But the name that uh, is more evocative of their philosophy is Chittamatra. Chittamatra means mind only. So the Yogacharans are also called the mind only school. And you hear this kind of flavor in Rinpoche's teachings when he talks about everything proceeding from the mind, even the way we uh, perceive objects of the external world depends on having this particular kind of mind with this particular kind of karma. The, the Yogacharans were the ones who came uh, up with the concept of Buddha nature. Buddha nature is this intrinsic sense of purity. Rinpoche has been mentioning it as the ground, the union of emptiness and cognizance and uh, compassionate, unceasing activity. But Buddha nature is not actually in the Mahayana Sutras. This term is not found in all the Prajnaparamita texts, all the earlier texts. It's a very key concept in Buddhism, but it's a later invention. It comes from the Sanskrit... Well, let me put it this way. Buddha nature is our English translation of a Sanskrit term which actually means something a little different. The Sanskrit is Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata is another name for the Buddha... Garba means womb. So what this is actually called is the womb of the Buddhas. Very similar to Prajnaparamita. The Buddha nature is called the womb of the Buddhas because it is, again, that element from which all awakened beings and, of course, all Buddhas spring. The other key doctrine that the Yogacarans introduced was what's called the three kayas. We've read in the chant, and I think Rinpoche will talk about it more, the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya. These correspond to the empty essence, the natural clarity, and the manifest compassion. Now, these are three aspects that together make up a unity, which is the Tathagatagarbha, the Buddha nature. But the three kayas were first talked about this way in the Chittamatra philosophy. They were also the school that developed the idea of the alaya, the eighth consciousness, the storehouse of karmic imprints or the karmic bank that Rinpoche has talked about. 
So you remember the Sarvastivadins tried to answer the question, where do the karmic imprints reside? By saying that past, present, and future all still exist in the present. The Yogacharans answered that same question with the concept of the storehouse consciousness of the alaya, vijnana. It was also the Yogacharans who came up with the term, the third turning of the wheel. They said the first turning of the wheel was the original uh, teaching at the Deer Park of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The second turning of the wheel were the Prajnaparamita Sutras. And the third turning of the wheel were their own teachings on uh, Buddha nature, the three kayas, uh, etc., The Chittimatrans believed or, or said that all these were taught by the historical Buddha, but scholars uh, say it differently. Scholars say that these teachings evolved in India at different stages. So 400 years of the classical teachings and then the emergence of the Mahayana. The Chittimatrans... Uh, I don't have a date at my fingertips for them but I believe they're something like two to three hundred CE. So just a few hundred years after the arising of the Mahayana came the Chittimatrans. So whether you want to say they were all taught by the Buddha or whether you want to understand them as stages of unfolding, these are three different stages of Buddhist philosophy that are still alive today and that are very, very important. So they're very helpful to understand what each of them had to contribute the uh, Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path, the Emptiness Teachings, and the Teachings on Buddha Nature. Then the Chittimatran view became the basis for uh, what migrated into uh, Tibet and became Dzogchen, and also what grew up in China as Chan and later uh, Huayan and migrated to Japan as Zen. The influence of the Chittimatrans uh, peaked around the 4th century, And after that, their influence and their popularity uh, didn't grow any further. But more interesting than that for me is that Buddhist philosophy stopped developing after the Chittimatrans. There have been no important developments in Buddhist philosophy since about 500 to 600 CE. So that's 1,500 years that it's basically been the same. It doesn't mean the practices have been the same, but the philosophy has been the same. The Chittimatrans and the Madhyamakas have some differences of opinion because Nagarjuna's approach was to cut away everything. Everywhere you take a stand, he'd cut it away, cut it away, cut it away. The Chittimatrans come and postulate this quality called Buddha nature. Well, the Madhyamakas just wanted to cut, 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 cut that away. That kind of debate still goes on today in Tibetan schools. Minjur Rinpoche is the younger brother of uh, Sogni Rinpoche and was visiting Marin for the first time a few years ago. Marianne uh, kindly asked if Sally and I, my wife, and I would like to take Minjur Rinpoche out for an afternoon of touring Marin. And we thought, sure, we'd love to spend some time with him. Maybe he'd be interested in seeing some of the natural beauty of the county. So we got in a car with him and Tashila, whom many of you know. 
Tashila often travels with Sogni Rinpoche and has helped assist and teach on these retreats many times. Tashi speaks good English. So there were four of us in the car, and on, we thought we would take him to Mount Tamil Pius, which is the highest point in Marin County. It's about 2,400 feet. You get a great view of San Francisco and the ocean and the shoreline all the way down almost to Santa Cruz, and we thought he'd be really impressed. So we're in the car, and I'm trying to make polite conversation because I haven't met uh, the Rinpoche before. So I asked him through Tashi, who was translating, uh, how do you find the West? It was his first trip to, to America. He said, uh, square and clean. <laughs> End of response. And it is. You know, if you come from Kathmandu, or in India, where he lives, it is very square and clean. That was his impression of the West. So I waited a while. Better try again to make a little conversation. I said, do you think that Tibetans tend to be happier than Westerners? He said, yes. (laughs) End of conversation. (laughs) We drove in silence for a while. We got to the top of Mount Tam, and we decided to walk around the peak of it. There's a path that takes about 20 minutes to walk around, and we started to walk it. And it was quite silent. I thought, well, I'd, I'd like to find a way to connect with him. He's such an esteemed teacher and an incredible yogi. Minja Rinpoche had completed two three-year retreats by the time he was 19 years old. So, okay, let's try a different tack. As we were walking around, I asked Tashi to put this question to him. What's the difference between the Madhyamaka view and the Dzogchen view? Minja Rinpoche's eyes lit up. He said, ah, the first thing you have to understand is there are 18 different kinds of emptiness. So he just kept, he kept talking, and the first thing he did is he plopped right down on the path. Now, this, the path is only this wide. It's only wide enough for two people to walk by. Minja Rinpoche plops right down on the path, so, of course, the other three of us also plop down, and he talks very excitedly for about five to ten minutes about the differences in these two views. And he sums it up by saying that, he said at the end, well, he said, the Madhyamakas believe that the Dzogchenpas believe something really exists, but we don't really believe that. (laughs) It's just a misunderstanding. And that was the end of our conversation. We picked up and walked again. So this kind of tension that the Madhyamakas cut everything away and are only left with emptiness and the Chittamatrans posit this notion of Buddha nature in the three kayas, that tension still exists today in the Tibetan world. It, it is also the same kind of tension that will exist between an orthodox Theravadan looking at the view of Dzogchen. I've had this discussion with many orthodox Theravadans. I related one of them yesterday who was not inclined to accept the view of Dzogchen. I said, but this stuff really works. (laughs) That didn't sway him. This is where I think the, uh, the interesting point about the controversies comes together. The Yogacharans were aware that they were stirring up controversy in the way they presented the Dharma 
And what I think is beautiful is they didn't care. Because what they said is, what does the theory matter anyway? It all dissolves when you come into emptiness. So what helps you come into emptiness? That's what they cared about. I think that's a beautiful guideline for us. What helps you come into the state of emptiness? Many different skillful means may help. We don't need to argue about the arcane philosophical points of their existence or non-existence. Similarly, I think with Theravada, Mahayana, Tibetan, getting along in the world today, a lot of opportunities for potential philosophical conflict. But that's a good thing also. Because all these schools have different styles. And different personalities gravitate to the different styles. That's a good thing because there are more options for each of us. Actually, one of the, one of the uh, riffs I've heard along this theme is that in the West, the artists gravitate to Tibetan, the carpenters gravitate to Zen, and the psychotherapists gravitate to Vipassana. So, there's a school for everybody. Kanza said that the real difference between the Theravadins and the Mahayanas is that the Theravadins tend to be rationalists and the Mahayanas tend to be mystics. But he elaborated it a little further. He went on to say, but the difference is really between the rational mysticism of Mahayana and the mystically tinged rationalism of Theravada. (laughs) So it's not so opposed. Again, it's just a different emphasis. Both of the schools have both aspects Kanza went on, the two schools had much common ground in the middle ranges of the path where the renunciate strove for emancipation in a quite rational and businesslike manner. I love that quote. <laughs> the renunciate striving for emancipation in a rational and businesslike manner. Again, when we come down to practice, the philosophical differences fall away. And we realize that as we put our heart and soul and body into our practice, we're all heading in the same direction. One of the suttas of the Pali Canon, uh, the Buddha says, All the Dhammas have one taste, just like the ocean has one taste, which is the taste of salt. All the Dhammas have one taste, which is the taste of liberation. One other, a couple of other small points. I've, I've reached the end of most of the philosophy part, but the, um, the bodhisattva tradition is still alive in Theravadan countries. There are bodhisattva practitioners today in Burma, which generally is a pretty orthodox Theravadan country. What they have done in order to be able to uh, live lifetime after lifetime is they have renounced their entry into the first stage of enlightenment. In the Theravadan view, once one attains the first stage of enlightenment called stream entry, one is destined for arahantship within seven lifetimes. So these practitioners renounce the entry into the stream, as they renounce the realization of nibbana, in order that their their rebirths will continue for a long, long time while they're developing all the paramis. 
Well, this tradition exists also in Theravadan countries. Another curiosity I came across in my reading is that there was a school in early Sri Lanka called the Mahayana Theravadans. I think this is beautiful because, personal opinion, uh, this is the way that uh, the Dharma is evolving here at Spirit Rock. I think that there's a commitment uh, here to Theravadan practice because it's so simple and down-to-earth and, and immediately applicable for people. But the philosophy or the spirit that is accompanying it here has more of a Mahayana flavor uh, than a strict Theravadan flavor. So I think this combination is going to be, is going to be useful in the West. Next stage of development, can we go a little longer? Okay. Next stage of development was the Vajrayana. The Vajrayana, interestingly enough, according to the histories that I read, including by Tibetan authors, did not represent a new departure philosophically. It rested on the philosophy of all the earlier schools, the Chittimatra, the Mahayana, the Theravada, but what it was was a whole new bag of tricks a whole new range of meditation techniques uh, that, that could work on, as one of my friends put it, the technology of consciousness. And the, the variety, the creativity, the refinement of the Vajrayana methods are, are amazing. You know, unparalleled in the history of spiritual life that I know of. There's such an incredible range of teachings and practices and, and options Within, uh, within that tradition. The term Vajrayana, as I understand it, and now I'm not speaking as any kind of expert, I'm just sharing what I've uh, found in my studies. The term Vajrayana is more or less synonymous with Tantra, uh, as understood in the Buddhist sense. The earliest Tantras developed in Hindu practices. So they were uh, borrowed and then elaborated upon originally from the Hindus. So I want to talk a little bit about how they came into being. This is probably around the 5th or 6th century CE. And the cult of Shiva was starting to grow up. Shiva had been a fertility god in the Indus Valley for a long time, but his influence had lessened because of the uh, Brahmanical influence, which was founded in the Vedas. So the earlier fertility gods were, were more or less uh, put aside. But because of the influence of, the, of Buddhism, the rise of Buddhism, the Brahminical tradition started to decline, and that allowed this earlier fertility cult of Shiva to spring back up. As adepts began to start to relate to Shiva, they started to perform sacred dances. In these sacred dances, they would channel the energy. They would try to identify their consciousness with the qualities of Shiva or of his consort or consorts, but particularly Kali. Then once they felt they had channeled that energy and put their mind state into the mind state of the god or goddess, then they would carry out their sacred dances so that these dances sprang from a divine origin within the practitioners. That started to be widely popular in northern India. Then, some groups started getting another idea about the god and his consort. 
And they decided, well, if there's a God and his consort, and we're in that divine place, what would it feel like actually to have that sexual union taking place? So these practitioners went off because this had to be done secretly. And they began to have uh, ritual intercourse when both parties had put their minds into the frame of the god or goddess. And then they practiced the union uh, in, in intercourse of those two beings. This practice altogether, even the dances and then the ritual sexual practices became known as deva yoga or union with the god. This was then, according to the history books, the way that the Buddhist practitioners first developed this concept. So originally it was just done as a visualization because the practitioners back then weren't dancing so much. But they could visualize. So they would start to visualize different deities. They borrowed some from the list of bodhisattvas, some attributes from the Hindu pantheon, and began to visualize it. But then as the, as the practices of Tantra grew in Buddhism also, some of the lay practitioners also began enacting uh, ritual intercourse. So they would take the tantric visualizations and carry them out in living form. And this started to spread. Imagine what the monks thought about this. (laughs) This was going on alongside well-established monastic communities completely committed to celibacy. Well, you can imagine as well as I. There's not a record of what was actually said, but you can imagine. But even the monastic communities adopted the visualizations. So the visualizations have come down and are practiced today even by the ref- what's called the Reformed sect, the Geluk uh, order within Tibet, of whom the Dalai Lama is uh, the titular head. And... Um, those monks also carry out the visualization part. As far as I know, the celibate monks within the Geluk order do not carry out any actual reenactment of the union of uh, deity and consort. But in other lineages, Nyingma and Kagyu, for example, which Rinpoche mentioned today, practitioners do both the visualization and the actual union of the consort in physical form. So these practices are still alive and um, practiced in in the world today. Round about, well, let's say around the 6th century, different levels of Tantra had emerged that worked on different energies within the subtle body, which Rinpoche was talking about today. And in time, in the Nyingma lineage, there came to be... Well, actually, this is before the Nyingma lineage. In the lineage from which Dzogchen came, there came to be six levels of Tantra, of which the highest was Dzogchen, also called Ati Yoga, peak yoga. The first records of the Dzogchen teachings in India show it emerging about the 6th century. It is explained, by the way, the best history I've found on this topic comes from a Western scholar who's a well-known Tibetan translator and practitioner named John Reynolds. 
And it's in a book called Golden Letters, which is very, very interesting. The Dzogchen practice was originally transmitted from Samantabhadra, who is a... Um, I won't try to describe him. I'll read him. Samantabhadra is the ultimate Dharmakaya aspect of Buddhahood beyond conception of the finite intellect, being without limitation and all-pervading like infinite space. So the archetypal essence of mind that has never departed from the ground. Samantabhadra transmitted the essence of Dzogchen in a mind transmission without words to another pure being named Vajrasattva. Vajrasattva is the being represented in this statue on the altar. Also a symbol of purity and intrinsic uh, awakening. Then it said that Vajrasattva transmitted it to a human being named Garab Dorje. And he was the first human holder of the Dzogchen teachings around the 6th century. Garab Dorje has a famous teaching called The Three Words That Strike the Vital Point, which Rinpoche often talks about in these retreats and, and may well in the next few days. Then Garab Dorje passed it on to a few disciples who transmitted it to Padmasambhava, Vairochana, and Vimala Mitra. And these were the Indian teachers who carried it into Tibet. And the Dzogchen teachings were said to come into Tibet in about the 8th century. And the name Padmasambhava is particularly linked with the Dzogchen lineage as it's carried out through the Nyingma school, uh, particularly. So this takes us up into the 8th century. In India in the 8th century, Buddhism was on the decline. Hinduism was on the rise. But it only had a few hundred, Buddhism only had a few hundred more years of existence in India. Because around the, the 8th century, Muslims began to invade from the west and northwest. Muslims from Turkey began to come in, and as they invaded, they did not want to tolerate other religions. And the basic impression you get from reading the history books is that they pursued sort of a scorched earth policy with respect to other religions. So they first established themselves, the Muslims first established themselves in the west and northwest, destroyed the monasteries and nunneries, burned the texts, and then moved eastward. By the 12th century, they had taken over all the upper Ganges Valley. And at that point, Buddhism was basically eradicated from India. The monasteries were destroyed. The teaching institutions like Nalanda were destroyed. The texts went up in flames. There's no telling how how many great teachings were lost due to that. And Buddhism basically was virtually non-existent in India as far as I know, from the 12th century up until about the last century, where the Tibetan diaspora has been repopulating it. Of all the places where there is an upsurge in Buddhism, India may be the most notable. And it's because of the the diaspora of the Tibetan refugees, one of the great blessings uh, that has come to the world out of that, that tragedy. So that pretty much brings us up to the present day in India. Tomorrow I'll start to talk more about uh, meditation practice and we'll get into the practical side of things more. But I wanted to lay this foundation to unveil some of the philosophical issues that we'll be covering over the next several days, uh, which we'll discuss as we get into the meditation itself.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.